Well, church family, Bethany and I did something the other day that was a little, can I move this out of the way? That way I don't knock myself out. Because if it would happen to someone, it would happen to me. Uh, Bethany and I did something the other day we hadn't done in a long, long time. Uh, we went to the mall while there were people there, lots and lots of people. And I say that, there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it's the pandemic, part of it's we had a baby, part of it's we uh, lived in a place formerly where the name of the mall is Post Oak Mall, but the better name would be Post Joke Mall because it's terrible. And you don't go to the mall in Bryan College Station. So we go to the mall the other day, and both of us, uh, we, we got there, and we, we had to even go beyond just going to the mall. We had to actually eat at the food court. And as we're sitting there, both Bethany and I are having the same reaction as we're just people watching. One, we're just like two parents of a young baby. We're just exhausted, so we're half in a trance out of it. But two, we're people watching. I looked at Bethany and I said, sweetie, I, I feel like we have been in some kind of a bomb shelter for two years, and I'm just going through culture shock as I'm looking around at, like, what styles are and outfits and stores and what's trendy and this and that. And there's just this range of things going as we're people watching and seeing uh, young and old and just, it's like a whole different world. And I, and I tell you that because as you watch the world, as you and I look out at the world, as we see things change, as we see things moving, what is it that we think and feel? Maybe it is some culture shock. Wow, this is not the world that I remember as I'm re-emerging. Maybe some of it is nostalgia. Walking through Dillard's and it's got that same little uh, three, I don't know how to describe it, just that wooden floor that's been there since forever. And I, I think about, oh man, how many times was I in here as a kid with mom and maybe shopping and I'd have to go find something to do. And there weren't phones back then for you kids in the room. You just had to go make something up and try not to get in trouble. Maybe it's frustration you feel. Maybe it's frustration because things are changing and things more dangerous. But is this question, uh, what do we think and feel? And more than that, if I were sitting in the mall, feeling whatever I feel, seeing whatever I see, but if I were sitting there with Jesus... What would he be seeing? What would he be thinking? What would be stirring in his heart? And how, as I watched him look and see the world that surrounds me, how would that impact what I see, what I think, what I feel, what I do about this world around me? It's a question we're going to deal with in part today, and so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. We are going to close out the story of Jonah today, Jonah chapter 4. If you'll remember, about a month ago, we, uh, we, we stepped into this story, and we watched in chapter 1 as God calls Jonah, and, and we saw ourselves that there is a calling upon our lives as believers that is, in a sense, prophetic because God has called you and I to be engaged on His mission, and that mission means we declare God's heart, God's Word, God's gospel to this present world. But we have a choice. Do we embrace that call or do we flee from that call? We watched in chapter 2 as God brings discipline in Jonah's life, delivers him from a far worse fate, and we see this reality of, of God's salvation play out in our lives as believers. And then several weeks ago, we walked into chapter 3 as, as Jonah marched into the city of Nineveh. 
Chapter three, verse four, he went through the city. He began to go one day's walk. He's in, he's in the midst of what should be a three-day assignment. He gets in there on the first day and he begins to cry out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And walking into this wicked city filled with people known for their inhumane and their, their butchery and, 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 and the, the sheer wickedness and evil, something amazing happens. Verse five, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And we watched as this, this awakening, we might use the term revival, though the better term would be awakening. We're watching as this wicked and pagan people are responding, everyone from the least to the greatest, stretching all the way up to the king. And look with me, chapter 3, verse 10, right before chapter 4, it says, when God saw their deeds, that they turned, that they repented from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God sends Jonah, Jonah finally goes, he's barely in there one day, and all of a sudden, the movement of God breaks out. People are responding left and right. God sees specifically, they're not just responding, but they are repenting, they are turning from their wicked way, acknowledging it's wicked and turning to God. And in the midst of this is where we pick up in chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Literally, it was a disaster, a great disaster to Jonah. That word displeased is an evil. As Jonah stands there that day watching people turn, repent from their wicked ways, it is to Jonah's soul, it is evil to watch it happen. And he became angry, a word that speaks of a hot, impassionate anger that's something stirring inwardly and manifesting itself outwardly. So there he prays to the Lord, and he said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said? Literally, was this not my word while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, and in order to, to keep it from happening, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness or mercy, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Then the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? So here's what happens. Jonah's there. He's barely made it through the first day of the assignment. He sees people turning to the Lord, and his reaction is to see this movement of God as something that is evil. He is angry as he watched these people turn to God, and finally we find out, we find out the reason why he fled the assignment in the first place. And it's fascinating because he says, Lord, is this not my word? I heard your word, but is this not my word? Is this not what I told you back, back in my homeland? I knew this would be what could happen, so I tried to get ahead of it. I tried to get out in front of it and, and prevent it from happening by, by bogging it down, by leaving, by running away, because this is what I know about you, God. And he proceeds to quote characteristics of God that, that come out of Exodus 34 in that moment where Moses has asked God to show him his glory. And there in the cleft of the mountain, God, God covers Moses and he passes by and his glory passes by and God declares who he is. And he says these very things. He says, 
that he is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. The very things that Jonah now says, I I know this, God, you're gracious, you're benevolent, you have an attitude of, of showing goodness to one who is unworthy, completely undeserving, one who in no way measures up. You're compassionate, like a mother for, his chi- for, for her child. There is a sympathy in your spirit that is moved and stirred at the misery and the plight of others. You're slow to anger. You're not quick-tempered. You're not hot-headed and and ready to just throw a lightning bolt at the first sign of a wrong sneeze. You're full of loving kindness, abounding in it, abounding, abounding, much upon much upon much, loving kindness, this term that that we don't have one English word to correctly translate, chesed, could be loving kindness, compassion, mercy. It's this idea of an unfailing covenant love where God in kindness and compassion loves the object of his love without fail. Because I know this about you, God, and because you're this way, you, you delight to relent. We saw this the last time in Jonah 3. We, there's this caricature that, uh, that God somehow delights. Oh, well, you're, you don't have my son. You're not, well, yeah, we get to kick another one down to hell. That is a caricature from the enemy. We saw in the book of Ezekiel, God says in Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33 that his heart does not delight. It's his heart, I, I, would, I would much rather the, the wicked turn from their wickedness, turn implying finding salvation that they may live. I do not delight in the death of the wicked is what he says. Hell is real because God is just and sin deserves justice. But oh, the heartbeat of God longing to see those enslaved and shackled to sin freed. This is what Jonah knows. It's his knowledge of the character and goodness of God that he said, this is why I never wanted to come in the first place. Because I knew if they heard your word and they responded, you would be exactly who you are and you would forgive them. And so it's better to me, I I can't, I just, I don't even want to be alive, God, is what he says. I can't imagine living in a world where Nineveh gets off easy, where Nineveh doesn't get what rightly should be coming to it. God, I can't imagine a world, it's better to me to die. So God asks him a question, do you have good reason? Do you have an upright motive? Is it right for you to be this angry? Now look with me here, Jonah doesn't answer. Instead, look at verse 5, Jonah went out from the city and set east of it. There he made a shelter for himself, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. Now, here's what's amazing, church family. This whole conversation we've just seen between Jonah and God, verses 1 through 4, these aren't happening in a separate soliloquy off to the side. This is what he's saying as he's standing in the city watching people repent. And likely praying this aloud, I mean, the audacity of Jonah, what is, what is so off in his heart? So he leaves the city, he goes out and sits east of it, and it's interesting, it says he made a shelter, and that word shelter is the same word that was used to describe the Israelites when in the wilderness they would have to use various sticks and leaves and branches to make a shelter for themselves. And Jonah now sits in almost a wilderness of his own 
his own dilemma, his own sin as he sits out east watching to see what would happen. But look in verse 6, God, who is a long-suffering, steadfast, and faithful God that we've seen all throughout the book of Jonah, he's not done with Jonah. So the Lord appointed, the Lord picked a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade, a protection over his head to deliver him from his discomfort, from his evil, his calamity. The same word that we've seen, God relent from calamity with Nineveh, the same word we've seen repeated over and over. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Literally, Jonah rejoiced with an exceedingly great joy. The only time we see Jonah delight in anything in the entire book as he's sitting up there on that hill to the east of the city, watching to see what would happen, watching to see what would happen, we don't know. Maybe he expected, would God maybe change his mind? Some think when he told God, I'd rather die, that maybe he was trying to manipulate God. God, I'm your prophet, so either kill me or kill them. Well, of course, God would say, we don't know exactly what he's waiting on. What we do know is he's standing out there waiting to see, and God in his grace to a prophet extremely undeserving of any kind of kindness in the midst of a region where temperatures are easily in excess of 110 degrees, where his shelter is not enough to protect him from the calamity, the discomfort of the sun, God appoints like he appointed a storm, like he appointed a fish for deliverance. Now he appoints a plant for protection. Don't know what kind of plant. Some suspect it may be a kind of gourd, but this plant grows up over him. But God's also not done with teaching. Look at verse 7. But God appointed a worm at dawn the next day and attacked the planet, withered up. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better than life. God in his grace appoints a plant to cover and protect. God also in his grace appoints a worm to destroy the plant because he is trying to break through and teach his child, his prophet, something. And that plant withers, and now Jonah's exposed, and the sun comes up, and now God appoints a scorching east wind. You, you, you and I, can, we can think about that. There's days when it's hot outside. But man, if you can at least catch a breeze, you're okay. Well, imagine it being hot outside, and you do catch a breeze, but the breeze is even hotter. There's no comfort. And Jonah, rather than replying to God, it says he wishes with all his soul. You might take that to mean with all of his might he wished to die, or literally, Jonah is pleading with his soul, please die. He is so desperate and beside himself. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason? Are you upright? Is there a validity to be angry about the plant? And notice Jonah's flair for the dramatic. I have good reason. I have reason to be angry even to death. Literally, I am so mad I could die. And here we see the point of the Lord's teaching. And the Lord said, you had compassion. Literally, you were stirred inwardly with sympathy and sorrow for the plight of the plant. You had compassion on the plant for which you didn't work You didn't cause it to grow. 
There was no labor, no effort from you. It came up overnight. It perished overnight. There was no long-standing relationship. There was nothing precious or unique about it. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? Jonah, you had compassion. Something stirred. The only joy that came into your soul was over this plant, and you had compassion on this plant dying. You didn't work for it. You didn't plant it. It wasn't in your mind. You didn't create it. You didn't do any labor. You barely even knew it. It was there for a part of one day. Should I not have as God compassion on a people, on this massive city with all these people living, these people who do not know their right hand from the left? And the idea with that statement is not that the people of Nineveh have no moral knowledge. We know they know at least a basic idea of right and wrong. Otherwise, they couldn't have repented. The king tells them, repent from our wicked ways, each one from the violence at your hands. It's not that there's no sense of conscience of of right or wrong. Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 tells us that there is a basic knowledge of right or wrong written into every man, woman, boy, and girl created by God. No, what they lack, though, is they lack the clear understanding and revelation of who God is, and so they don't really fully understand and fathom the weight of what they've done wrong. They don't understand that they are enslaved and shackled to sin. There's no other option. They don't have another choice than to walk in these ways of death. So Jonah, should I not have compassion? Should my heart not be stirred for those people who I've made in my image, who I fearfully and wonderfully created, who I knit together in their mother's womb, on every one of whose heads I know the amount of hairs that are there? Should I not have compassion on them? And not just them, but we see all throughout storm, fish, plants, wind, now animals. God even sees the animals. Should I not have compassion on my creation? And then, church family, the book just stops. It ends with God's question. You and I aren't told Noah's response. We don't know from the rest of the Scripture. There's not another reference that describes Noah's response. We don't find out the end of Jonah's story. Instead, you and me are left with a question Because as we come to the end of Jonah, the, the, what, what, what is weighty and important is not what happens with Jonah, but church family, how do you and I answer the question? The question is left to us, should God not have compassion on image bearers lost and without understanding? The ending is abrupt with purpose. That today you and I would consider ourselves, that we would check our hearts, that we would allow God to lay us bare, and we would see if, if, if in our lives are we as followers of Christ enjoying and living and thriving on the compassions of God, yet refusing to see the lostness of the world with the same compassion in which we live and move and breathe. See, church family, we're called in here as we look out as a world, as we sit down and see a world in pain and misery, as we see a world seemingly just going from bad to worse to worse to worse, as we watch craziness everywhere we look, 
It's hard to even come up with a couple basic examples because you could pick out 20 different examples just from the news headlines today. And the question is, when you and I look out on that and see that, are we filled with, with anger? Are we filled with frustration? Are we filled with animosity? When we look out, are we filled with a deep, resounding compassion of God? In order to have a deep and resounding compassion of God, church family, you and I got to make sure that we know and understand the heart of God. Walk back with me, look, do we, do we understand rightly the heart of God? Listen, Jonah's struggle in the passage is not that he doesn't understand God. It's not that he doesn't believe God. There's an irony here. Jonah's struggle in the passage is that he is absolutely sure of God's character. He's absolutely sure that God really is this gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, merciful, loving, kind, desiring to relent, he absolutely believes God is holy. He absolutely believes God is just. And he wants to see God's justice fall on Nineveh. But he is absolutely certain of God's character. Are you and I? Are you and I certain of God's character? Part of Jonah's confidence in God's character is what he's experienced. If you and I are in fact in Christ by grace through faith, then you and I are, are presently, we have both at the moment of salvation, but presently we experience a God who is gracious towards us, especially in our weakness, who is slow to anger, who is compassionate who has relented concerning the ultimate calamity you and I could face, which is to stand before him accountable for our own sin. He's relented because you and I have responded to the offer of salvation that's in Jesus Christ. But yet, church family, are we confident? Just, just as an aside, how often do we, is our, our picture of God one of lesser thoughts God must be really hacked off at to me today because I accidentally snoozed for 10 seconds in pastor's sermon. God must be really hacked off at to me today because a salesman came to the door and, and I didn't want to talk to him, so I just brushed him away pretty quick. Ooh, I sneezed wrong. God's mad at me. He doesn't want anything to do to me. Well, wait a minute. This passage says God is slow to anger. It doesn't say that God doesn't take every one of our sins seriously. It says that in taking our sins seriously, God is... Not slow as come count slowness, but he is slow to, to build up to the point of taking major action. See, perhaps maybe our lack of compassion is because we're not really sure of the character and heart of God. Perhaps because we've entertained lesser thoughts about God. Church family, we make sure we understand and see the heart of God, and, and the heart of God is clear throughout the whole book of Jonah. God's heart, God's heart is to bring salvation to the nations. God's heartbeat is to bring salvation. God's heartbeat is to see the gospel message offered to every man, woman, boy, and girl of every tongue and tribe and people that are on the earth. It's there all throughout. Do you remember the sailors? The sailors? Pagan sailors who, who don't worship God yet 
come to see God's movement and worship God. The Ninevites, a people not only who don't worship God, but who were the direct and most viable enemy to God's people in the northern kingdom. Church family, we need to make no mistake. From Genesis 3.15, where God says he will bring the seed of the woman to, to deal with the enemy, to deal with the serpent, to bring salvation from the covenant God made with Abraham, where he said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great people from you, and that people will be a blessing to all the nations, because from that people is going to come the Messiah, who said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, who when he went on that cross took the sin of all the world, not just Israel, who when he rose from the grave and he commissioned his disciples, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, who when we see a glimpse into heaven at the end in Revelation 7, it says, I beheld a, a multitude surrounding the throne, too big to count, of every tongue, of every tribe, of every people, the nations. God's heart, church family, is to seek and bring salvation to the nations. God wants to save. He wants to save the nice and the wholesome, the sweet family down the street, the kind coworker next door. He wants to save even the mean and the inhumane, those who are hostile towards him. Maybe what comes to your mind is that atheist liberal pundit on the news, Stephen Hawking. But understand this, it's not just those who are hostile to him. God's heart is to save even those who are extreme. God's heart is to save you and me just as much as God's heart is to save a Nazi or an ISIS soldier or a Soviet gulag captain. So that's the reality in the text. It's part of Jonah's struggle. God, you really want to save the Ninevites? You want to save the people who have inflicted suffering and pain upon your people for decades, for generations? You want to save a people whose, whose butchery is legendary for being cruel? You want to save a people that, for the sake of of who's in the room, pastor can't even really say what all they were guilty of? You want to save even them? Yes, because God's heart is to save the nations. God's heart is to save anyone who would hear his gospel, no matter how good or bad they are in the world's eyes. God's heart is to save people who respond to his message. And church family, we've got to be clear God wants to use our church to be a part in saving the nations, not just our clique. We must be a church for God's glory to all peoples, tongues, and tribes. We've got to understand that the heart of God is driven by the character of God. Why, why does God have such a, a stirring, a heartbeat to see people saved? Because he is a God who is, who is gracious who is compassionate, who is slow to anger, who is abundant in, in unrelenting love, who, who relents concerning calamity. Why is God's heart to save? Because this is who God is. It's not just something that God said, well, that would kind of be a good idea. You know, I've got all this stockpile of resources. That might be a really a, a great humanitarian cause I could take up. This is the core of who God is. 
And because it's the core of who God is, because God looks down on a lost, dying, broken world in rebellion with him, but he looks down with a heart that desires to act in grace. There's not a human being, you and me included, who deserves any ounce of what God gives. In fact, we deserve every ounce of what Christ took. Who's slow to anger. You know, sometimes we have that conversation, man, our country's just getting really, really bad. I mean, I wonder if, I wonder if God, I wonder if God just is, is the judgment of God coming? Now listen, let me not, make no mistake, God also says in Exodus 34 that he's a God of justice who doesn't, uh, who certainly forgives sins at repentance, but who also visits, visits the iniquity of those who don't repent. God is a God of justice. God does take sin seriously. That is not in any way contradicted here, but understand And as I studied this afresh this week, maybe God looks down at the mess of our nation and the mess of our world, and what he looks down is he looks down with a heart of compassion, slow to anger, ready and willing and wanting to use his church to proclaim the message of the gospel to a world that is in desperate need. It's because it's who he is, and it impacts his relationships. We see his relationship with creation all throughout Jonah. He's sovereign over all creation. He uses the wind and the seas. He uses the fish. He uses the plant. He uses sovereignly all over all creation. We know he cares over creation. That's why he makes mention. Isn't it funny? Jonah, should I not have compassion over the city? And we get compassion of God over people, but hey, there's also a lot of animals there. And I don't want to see animals, even animals, needlessly just get obliterated. Says the same God who knows even every sparrow when it falls. Changes his relationship not just with creation but towards us. See, church family, the crux of the issue is every man, woman, boy, and girl is uniquely and distinctly created in the image of God for a holy and loving relationship with God. Every person, no matter how good or bad in our estimation, represents the highest form of all God's creation, seen and unseen. That includes the angelic realm. And God's love for humankind is deeper than any other part of all creation. Every person fearfully and wonderfully made, you see God's character, his heart to seek and to save the nations, his heart to seek and save people, is because of who he is, his character, and it impacts the way he relates. And it impacts the way he relates and the way that when he looks down on the plight of humanity, he looks down with compassion. Church family, we need to understand. We need to know and understand the character and heart of God, the mission of God, who God is and what he's up to. But we also need to see and look at the plight of humanity because when God looks at the plight of humanity, he does so with compassion. And if you and I are to see the plight of humanity as, as God does, as Christ does, then it must be filled with compassion. Why? Scripture tells us, Romans 3, there is no righteous person, not even one. There's no one who understands There's no one who seeks out God of their own volition. They've all turned aside. Together, everyone's become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Church family, when you and I look out on a world broken and battered by sin, we look out on a world of the blind leading the blind. 
We look out on a world of people acting in the only possible way they can act because they are dead and enslaved to sin. And listen, by all means, in a country like we live in, there, should, there is a place and, and a right standing to advocate for righteous and holy legislation. But also understand this, you could pass the holiest of legislation on down the line through Congress and it will not make people any less dead in their sin. Only Christ can bring life to the dead. And you and I need to be built up. We cannot expect mankind to act like believers because there's not. It doesn't mean we ignore sin. It doesn't mean we have just laws. But understand, as we see the plight, it should elicit compassion from us, not indignation. Church family, do we see image bearers who don't know their right from their left? Do we see sheep without a shepherd? Or do we see enemies, those who would threaten our way of life, our peace and calm, those who would interrupt our plans and timeline. Listen, sometimes we can go, man, how, how awful the world is. Listen, church family, do you realize this? We're not God. Meaning that the worst of the wickedness of this world, we're not the ones it's a direct offense to. And if the one to whom it's a direct offense to can look down upon mankind and show compassion the same way if you are in Christ in this room, he has looked down on you and I, then it behooves us to understand who he is and to show the same kind of compassion. I think of examples. Um, we've probably all heard a sermon where there's been, it's, the passage is addressing some kind of a hot topic moral issue. And we throw out an example. And it's easy. Just pick one from Hollywood. Here's this actor, here's this actress. Look at how terrible. Can you believe what they're promoting to our kids? Can you believe all of this? And we, we, we take people on pedestals and show them indignation instead of, I don't know if anybody's followed it, but there was recently a high-profile case between a major actor and actress. And if you listen to any details of that case and listen to what their daily lives were, the response from you and me cannot be one of indignation, but it has to be one of brokenness and compassion when you listen to the absolute depths of death they are living in. Church family, as we look out, we've got to see the plight of mankind. We've got to see the plight of humanity and be a people who show compassion. Because do we have good right to be angry? when you and I are objects of the same compassion, there's not a one of us in this room sitting safely secured in the kingdom of heaven except from the grace and mercy and compassion of our God. Do we have a right to be angry at a world who knows no better, who can do no different, when we're the ones who've received that compassion and we're the ones with the message that can fix and heal their brokenness? But here's the reality, church family. We've got to know and understand the heart of God. We've got to see the plight of humanity and display the compassion of God. But it's a challenge because of what we would call the prophetic dilemma. The prophetic dilemma, because here's the reality. We see a dilemma in Jonah. Here's the, lest, we, lest we turn Jonah into the ultimate villain, understand what Jonah will have grown up with. He will have grown up with seeing and hearing the stories, and, and especially because we don't have an age of Jonah. Maybe he's older, 
And he's seen days when Assyria was in greater power, and he has seen firsthand the absolute wickedness, the way the armies of Nineveh have come in and decimated and brutalized and slaughtered innocents for decades. It's not just a one-time problem. And he's looking at it going, God, I know you're a God of justice. God, I know you're a God who does not delight in these things that are happening. I don't want to go give them an out. I just want to see your fire from heaven drop and consume them. Maybe his struggle is one of what some theologians would say, strict justice, wickedness demands the instant and just retribution of God. Maybe it's one of national protection. Maybe he realizes if Nineveh, if this is the moment, Nineveh could get taken out. If, if Nineveh finds the grace of God and stays longer, I'm sure they'll eventually reject God and then they will threaten us again. And by the way, if that was his worry, he was right. Because the next generation in Nineveh would turn back to their wicked ways and they would be the ones to come in 722 BC, just about 30, 40 years later, and destroy the, the northern kingdom and scatter the 10 tribes that we now call the lost tribes. Maybe his struggle is one, as, as some would say, of, of an ethnocentrism. God, God, they're the Ninevites. You can't love them. They're not your people. They're not your chosen people. Maybe if they want to come over here, but the truth is we don't know completely what was driving, why he does not want to see Nineveh experience the grace of God, but we do know that there was a real dilemma for him. There was a real dilemma from him because here's the reality of God's grace, church family. When God acts in grace towards someone, it means he really does bestow favor and goodness upon those who are absolutely not worthy. He does it on the basis of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. His saving grace really does forgive and, in a sense, forget, meaning that when, when you experience and encounter the grace of God, your ledger of all the wrong, all the sin in your life before God, it is no more. Last week we looked at John 11. I mentioned my, my, my grandmother's murder. If that murderer was ever caught and he finds the grace of God, listen, he will not live all of eternity in the new heaven and new earth with some kind of mark on his robe that specifies he was a murderer. You know why? Because he was taken and dipped in the same cleansing, powerful blood of Christ that I was and he'll only be wearing a white, shiny, glorious robe because that is the power of the grace of God. Now understand, it doesn't mean everybody gets saved. Ah, God's a God of grace, everybody gets saved. No, repentance is required. The reason that God relents, chapter three, verse 10, is because he saw their repentance. If you wanna know the grace of God, there must be repentance from sin in your life. The grace and character of God does not mean, if, if God is compassionate, it doesn't mean that we water down the truth, church family. We've gotta be clear, sin is sin, Sin is sin. Sexual morality is, is sin. Anything outside of one biological male and one biological woman in the covenant of marriage, anything outside of that, heterosexual, homosexual, if it's outside of that covenant relationship, it's sin according to Scripture. Laziness is sin. Gossip is sin. Murder is sin, no matter what name you want to call it to make it more acceptable. We need to be clear sin is sin. But we need to be clear, sin is sin because we are driven by compassion and love because there is a solution to fix the problem of sin. His name is Jesus. 
And we don't proclaim His goodness and greatness. We don't come and call sin, sin in order to just rag on people and, and punch people, but we do it to proclaim the glories and excellencies of Him who first loved us. Because the grace of God really is powerful. And here's what it means by the grace of God. God's grace and His long-suffering does mean this as far as our experience in this world. And this is Jonah's dilemma. Because God shows patience and grace, you and I will experience a world where at times it seems like evil flourishes. That's a hard truth. And it's a hard truth that God himself, Jesus Christ, was not spared from. It's a hard truth that many of our brothers and sisters who've remained faithful to the point of death in the persecuted church have not been spared from. But you and I can take hope because we see what Jonah couldn't see. Jonah just sees Nineveh getting off free. We don't see Nineveh getting off free anymore. When someone comes to faith in Christ, they don't get off free. Sin was not simply tossed out of the courtroom. No, if someone experiences the grace of God, God is still just because their sin wasn't tossed out, but it was transferred and fully punished by Jesus Christ himself. So we gotta ask the question, church family, where do we act like Jonah? Is it when we're stubborn and we ignore the call to God's mission? Is it when we ignore the call to go and share, even when he interrupts our plans? Do we complain about Oh man, this, this neighbor stopped me. I was trying to get, trying to get the dishes done. Do we, do we, or do we joyfully submit? Do we rightly understand, church family, that the mission of God is paramount to God's heart? It is not a side hustle for God to seek people to save. And if it's not a side hustle for God, it can't be a side hustle for us in our faith. It doesn't mean that every one of us in this room has to share the gospel 32 times a day in order to be on mission. But it does mean we need to understand our life is intended this side of heaven to be poured out for his mission. Whether we're in the office or at home, we act like Jonah when we ignore the call of God. We act like Jonah when we're, our effort is half-hearted. Jonah went one day in on a three-day assignment. He never told them about hope or salvation. He doesn't finish the assignment. He only gives lip service. Church family, we do the same thing. We do the same thing when our prayer life is devoid of ever praying for opportunities to share. We do the same thing when we give lip service to, yep, share the gospel, but there's not ever any attempt to try to share the gospel. We act like Jonah when our effort's half-hearted. We act like Jonah when we have more compassion for the plants and animals than our fellow man. Listen, let me give you a simple deal. Is there more stirring in your heart when the Aggies or Longhorns lose than there is when you sit at the food court and see people walk around in all sorts of crazy outfits and recognize, and you see people engaging in behavior that's wrong, do you feel more compassion for the loss of your favorite sports team than you do for the lostness of people? Do we feel more compassion when plans don't go our way than we do when there's opportunities? Do we feel more compassion at nostalgia, wishing things were the way they were, than we do at a world that's dying and needs the gospel? Do we have more sympathy? Is there more things that raise up when we think about political engagement and this and that than we do about seeking to serve the kingdom of God for whom we are ambassadors in this world? Are we more upset about plants and animals 
When that commercial for the animal shelter comes on with the Sarah McLaughlin song in the arms of an angel, does that elicit more sorrow in our heart than when we look down our street and we're unsure about whether or not those individuals know Christ? Church family, who is God calling us to reach? As we come to the end of Jonah, do we truly have God's heart for people, for the world? Or are we just mad things aren't the way they used to be? Church family, we've got to be a church family that is for God's heart of reaching the nations, that looks out at our world with a desire to serve and lay our lives down to show compassion and point to the goodness and greatness and grace of God that can save and heal. And yes, it puts us in dilemmas. There's times when, it, when there's going to be a struggle and an angst, but oh, church family, may we be found to reflect our Savior Jesus and not a poor prophet Jonah. Let's pray. Father, May our hearts be burdened by who you are. May our hearts be convicted by who you are. May our hearts be stirred by who you are. God, remind us afresh, everyone in this room, brother and sister in Christ, remind us fresh what it means that we've experienced your grace and your compassion. God, help us see in our lives where you are gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and and steadfast in loving kindness and covenant love. God, that we would be sure of who you are and that in in really truly seeing and knowing and experiencing who you are, Lord, that that would transform how we see and live and move and breathe in this world. God, we can't control people coming to know you or not. That's out of our hands. But, oh, goodness, Lord, we can control whether or not we're faithful to share as you open doors. So, Holy Spirit, find us with open hands. Fill our hearts with boldness. Open those doors. God, stir our hearts with your compassion. God, revive us. And as you do your work of revival in our hearts, Lord, bring an awakening. Lugerville and Hutto and Elgin and Maynard and Round Rock and Northeast Austin, the community you have placed us in, Lord, bring an awakening. Jesus, we look to you now. It's in your name we pray.